And we got a lot to cover this morning. It doesn't seem like much since we're only going through a few verses, but we got a lot to cover. And I've titled the message this morning, Doubling Down. And the reason I've titled this, many of you are familiar with that term, but for those that aren't, here's the definition off of the internet. It means to strengthen one's commitment to a particular strategy or course of action, typically one that is potentially risky. We're going to see Jesus doubling down this morning. We're going to see him doubling down really throughout the remainder of John chapter five. We're kind of in the aftermath, if you will, of Jesus's healing of the infirm man by the, at the pool of Bethesda. And, and if you recall, there was a couple of problems there. This was John's third hand selected sign to convince his readers to trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life. But some problems came out of it because the healing took place on a Sabbath. That lit a fire under the religious leaders of the day. They were upset about that because they had believed really any kind of activity on the Sabbath was wrong. Even if you were healing a man, that was wrong. You were breaking the Sabbath, thus you were a sinner, thus you were under the condemnation of God. And thus, as religious leaders often do, they take the place of God and carry out that the execution of that judgment. And this is what they're trying to do to Jesus in this section. One of the things we're going to see this morning is sometimes, I don't know if you've been in a conversation where you say something, maybe, maybe it's on a controversial topic, like maybe you're talking about like Donald Trump, Joe Biden, and you, and you think you're in a room of friendlies, and then you say it, and you realize you're not in a room of friendlies, and, and some, of, some of you I know, some of you are like, you double down, you don't care. The facial expressions do nothing to you. You just, you just keep punching and punching and punching. But the rest of us normal people, just kidding. But, but many of us, we, we see that and we kind of back off a little bit. We kind of soften it a little bit. Let me just tell you, Jesus is not going to do that in John chapter 5. He is going to double down. He's going to lean in. He's going to lock in to who he is and why he has the right to heal a man on the Sabbath. So he's not backing down here. He's, he's actually bringing this to ahead. So it's kind of fun in that way to watch. And so I, John chapter 5, as one commentator said, it's the most thoroughgoing statement of Jesus' unity with the Father, his divine commission, his authority, his proof of Messiahship. And 5, you're going to see it is a treasure trove of wealth about the person of Jesus Christ. So if you're sitting here this morning, you like looking at Jesus Christ, you like enjoying Jesus Christ, you like being occupied with Jesus Christ, you're going to love John 5. Because it's, it's what it's all about. He is what it's all about. And I, loved, I even love the emphasis of the worship this morning on a person. Let's never forget that. Christianity is about a love relationship with Jesus Christ. It's about relational intimacy. Morals follow. But let's not like morality The bane of our existence. The bane of our existence is a relational intimacy with the one who died for us and rose again. And we can't forget that. That's what's so important. So I better get on because we got a lot of things to cover here. Verse 17. But Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now and I have been working. Now you're going to notice a couple of times in this chapter, Jesus is going to, it's going to say Jesus answered them. But we're not going to have the question or the comment before. So it's kind of like listening to a phone call from one side. And oftentimes you can kind of make out what's going on on the other side. Sometimes you're, you're, you're clueless. You're like, what's going on there? Why did, why did they react that way? Because you're only hearing one side. We're going to hear really John, I think, to, to condense this story and make it a little bit shorter. He just doesn't record it. But I think we are going to be able to figure out pretty quickly what they're saying or at least what they're describing or potentially asking by the way Jesus answers it. And so this word answer, we'll see it a couple of times. It, it actually talks about returning an answer to a verbal reference or a preceding circumstance. So something happened before. They said something before and then he answered. We just don't have that, that first kind of comment. And what he says is this. My father has been working until now and I have been working. Now we look at that in the English text. We don't, we don't think through the context too much. We're like, well, what's the big deal there? And he's saying, well, my father's been working. We talk about God as our father. What's the big deal? It was a huge deal. What he just said here was, I, I mean, John five, Jesus is going to run out of microphones. You know, you've heard that like mic drops. He's just going to drop one. He's like, here, give me another one. And he's just going to keep dropping mics throughout the entire conversation. This is actually one of them. Again, we don't know what they said. Most likely they said something like, why did you heal this man on the Sabbath? 
Why did you tell him to take up his mat and walk? Why did you do that? That's most likely what he said. And Jesus' response was this, my father, right? So he identifies Yahweh as his father. He makes it very personal. And what this did to the Jewish mind is he claimed a couple things. And this is where context really helps to understand. And it's also going to explain why they react the way they do in verse 18 to this statement. In fact, this statement right here is enough to say, you know what? We're killing you, buddy. We're taking you out, right? This statement right here. And we're like, what is the big deal? (laughs) It's, It's kind of from an English perspective. But he's claiming a few things here. He's claiming my father was the source and authority for my, for the Sabbath day healing. He's claiming a direct connection and origin and authority and relationship to the father as it related to a Sabbath day healing. The second thing is what he's claiming is the father was in direct alignment with what he did and Jesus's own perspective on Sabbath day healing. He's saying, you guys are trying to defend God. You don't have to. He's on my side. He sees this Sabbath day healing the same way I see it, not the way you see it, the same way I see it. And this is what he's claiming by making this statement. And as we're going to see in verse 18, he was claiming the equality with God, the father. He was claiming equality with Yahweh, which was just incredible blasphemy to the Jewish leaders. And that's what's going to come out in verse 18 when we get there. But what's really beautiful, and I want you to see this throughout the whole chapter, and I'll try to remind us week by week as we work through chapter 5. What's really beautiful is Jesus' relationship with God the Father, what he brings out here. And I'm not, and this is not, I don't, I don't say this in a weird way, but they loved each other. They do love each other. They're in complete unity with each other. They're in complete unison and agreement with each other. And the thing that Jesus Christ valued the most on, on, in his earthly life was his relationship to his father, that fellowship with his father. This is what he was passionate about. Now, you could talk to Jesus during his life, and if you interviewed him and said, hey, what's going on today? What are you looking forward to most today? We would probably think Jesus said, well, there's this guy down at the pool. He's been crippled for 38 years. I'm going down to heal him. That's what I'm most excited about. Or he might say, there's these 10 lepers. I'm going to heal all 10. Only one's going to come back and thank me. But, but I'm excited about that one. Like we would think that it was all this activity. And I'm going to tell you, I think Jesus is a little bit more subtle and boring, if you will, than that. I think he's, he would wake up and say, you know what? I get to fellowship with my father. I get to hold my father's hand through this life. I get to enjoy my father. And you're going to see this bleed out of his heart really throughout this entire chapter as he as we going through and so developing these thoughts further in terms of what jesus said one of the things he's going to bring out here as he kind of says this in verse 17 is that he and god the father are co-workers he's not working against god he you guys don't you know the jewish religious leader you guys don't need to defend god he's with me We're doing this together and we're going to see him and he's just going to keep leaning into that thinking as he goes. In fact, it's my father has been working. It's an active working. The idea is that Jesus is is commenting that Yahweh is active in the affairs of men, even on the Sabbath. Can you imagine if something were to happen to you on the Sabbath, something very uh, personal and important to you and you cried out to God in prayer and you're like, oh man, he's not available until five o'clock tomorrow. Like he's taking this, God takes the Sabbath off, right? Well, God clearly doesn't take the Sabbath off. Even the Jews understood that God didn't take the Sabbath off. Even the rabbis realized that. Jesus then brings his father in in this way because Jewish religious thought, they thought that God had the right to do anything he wanted to do on the Sabbath, but man did not. And so Jesus starts here. My father has been working until now. And you know, and in a sense, they're, they're like, amen. Yeah, I can go for that. Yeah, that's true. The, the Father, Yahweh, he can do anything he wants, anytime he wants. And we see this. I mean, one of the things that it's hard, sometimes the, the, the Sabbath gets confused, but even the Jews understood this. God rested on the seventh day following creation, but it doesn't mean he rests every seventh day going forward, right? He, he rested on the seventh day in creation, after creation, but that wasn't an ongoing thing. He's active in the affairs of men on the Sabbath. In fact, we learn in Colossians that Jesus holds the world together. What if he took his finger off, took the finger off every Sabbath? I mean, people would be flying everywhere, right? I mean, the, the earth would stop spinning. I mean, who knows what would happen? 
So he's actively involved. This is Jesus's point here. And in essence, he leads in with this statement because they would, the majority of them would, would agree with what he said. They had no problem with this statement. So he leads into with this statement and it's like a conversation. They're like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he just takes this sharp left-hand turn and that's when they, and that's when they go nuts. He takes, well, to them, it's a sharp left-hand turn for us. We're, we're seeing where he's coming from. We're seeing his thinking here as to why he's so confident that he can heal a man on the Sabbath. And that's not breaking the Mosaic law. And, and, and the sharp left is simply this. And I have been working. The father's been working. This, if you're counting mic drops through John 5, here we go. Start counting. This is a mic drop. Simply doing this he, in, a, in a simple statement like this. God the father has the right to work on the Sabbath. You guys agree with that. And oh, by the way, I do too. And he just made himself, you can see why they're going to say in verse 18, he made himself equal with God. That's what he's talking about here. And you can see that kind of borne out with what he says. This claim of being able to work on the Sabbath, uh, again, was a claim that only belonged to Yahweh. He was entering uncharted air, so to speak, by making this statement, because that was reserved for Yahweh and Yahweh alone. So he is bringing himself in. And it's so interesting because it's like Jesus is just making very simple statements, but they're super profound. They're simple, and yet they're theologically just incredibly deep, <laughs> what he's talking here. And that's kind of the whole book of John oftentimes is, is that kind of back and forth. But notice what Jesus is doing. He is justifying the, his healing of the man on the Sabbath He's justifying by reminding them that God the Father had the ability to work on the Sabbath. That's the argument he's using to justify his own healing on the Sabbath. They agreed that working on the Sabbath was a a privilege peculiar to God. Um, But by claiming to work on the Sabbath like the Father worked on the Sabbath, Jesus was saying, I have the prerogative to do that as well because I'm God. You see, it's... It's, it's an interesting argument. It's a simple argument here. And one of the things that Jesus was claiming, guys, you think my relationship to the law is just like yours? My relationship to the law is just like God the Father. And so I can work on the Sabbath. This is the argument that he's making. Now, instead of the leader saying, why or how can you make this claim? Tell us more. Explain this to us. They just simply trusted in their own evaluation of the situation. They went nuts. They literally went nuts and they never recovered from this. In fact, when you get to John 7, they're still going to be talking about this miracle right here. The pool of Bethesda is still going to be talking about it in John 7. So they set aside every item of proof that was designed to prove and validate his identity. They just set it aside. They said, nope. You violated the law the way we saw it, the way we interpret the Mosaic law. You violated it. You deserve to be punished. They're not even listening to what Jesus said. They're a little ticked off. That's an an understatement of the year. Verse 18. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. This is one of the things, too, I, I think it's, it's probably wise to bring out is just the concept of father and son in this culture. You know, when we think in our, in our Western culture, the contemporary mind, we think the son and the father, we just automatically we think of two independent people, two separate people, independent people. That's just kind of how we naturally think, which is, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just the way our culture views it. We just need to understand that in this time, in this ancient Eastern mind, a son was seen as an extension of the father. In many ways, the son was viewed as, as identified with the father, an extension of that unity, not a distinction from, but an extension of. So we've got to understand that because that kind of makes sense as to how they're reacting here as he's talking about this. And we've already talked about this before, but let me just throw this in here. When Jesus keeps referring himself to the son, the son, the son, what does that possibly trigger for a religious Jew who understands their Old Testament? Daniel 7, right? Where God the Father gives the kingdom to the Son of Man. And so there's this trigger, too, to say, hey, he's the Messiah. So there's lots of things going on. Lots of things, probably, you know, too much to bring out everything. But again, they thought, they sought to kill him. This word uh, sought, translated sought, means to seek after, to look for, to strive to find. There's this idea of this earnestness and anxiety. It almost feels like this became their primary focus, right? 
they're going to get this done come you know where in high water, right? I mean, they're just going to get it done kind of deal is the idea. They're seeking it. Not only that, John uses this word in the imperfect tense. It's an ongoing zealousness to kill Jesus. This wasn't a one-time event that they forgot about the next day. This triggered a series of continual behavior where they were plotting and striving and looking for an opportunity to take this man out. And it all started right here. So John uses that tense to even reveal it to us. And then the phrase translated all the more means to a greater or higher degree. That means what? They've had these thoughts before. We just haven't had it recorded. Probably when he overturned the temple back in John 2, right? They were probably a little hot then. The effect of Jesus's claim, his explanation in verse 17, literally made them want to kill him more. It, it literally made them focus on killing him more. So Jesus literally, instead of backing down, he poured gasoline on the fire. You know, it's a poor guy. I've seen that one a few times. But he poured gasoline on the fire. Again, he's not backing down. He's doubling down, right? This would have been a point where he said, let me slide back. You guys are getting a little hot under the collar. Let's talk about this in the future. But he doubles down. He strengthens his commitment, again, to a potentially risky course of action. And does Jesus know where all this is going to end anyways? Yeah, it's going to end in his death. He, he knows it's going to end there. But again, it's not the Father's time. But he doesn't back off. He doubles down. He keeps teaching them. One of the things John does is he provides two reasons for the extreme hatred of Jesus. That first reason we know we've been looking at, he broke the Sabbath. According to them, when he commanded this man to be healed and when he commanded him to take up his bed and walk, Jesus had violated the Sabbath according to the religious leader's interpretation of that, which largely just involved activity. They had had missed the heart of the Sabbath that we had looked at again last week. In fact, the word broke here, it's kind of interesting because it's also in the imperfect tense. And, and we'll have a couple of Greek comments this morning. It seems, it's a little bit more Greek heavy than usual, but just, just want to bring some of these things out because they're helpful to understand. I think the broke is in the imperfect tense. It indicates ongoing action in the past. What it basically is saying is that Jesus broke the Sabbath many times during his ministry, according to their definition of breaking the Sabbath. We looked at some of those last week. And so it's kind of the idea is he kept on breaking the Sabbath. It's kind of the idea, okay, throughout his course of ministry. Again, not violating the Mosaic law. Jesus was sinless. But violating their interpretation of the Mosaic law, that's what he was violating. And to them, that was one and the same. Second reason, we've been talking about this, Jesus made himself equal to God the Father. Again, by claiming this same right or prerogative to work on the Sabbath, he was claiming equality with God. And they recognize this. What we're going to see is throughout the rest of this dialogue, Jesus is just going to keep defending his ability to heal on the Sabbath by doubling down on his relationship with God the Father. That's going to be his main argument, his relationship with God the Father, his origin from heaven. The emphasis in this section, uh, again, is on Jesus being an extension of his father, just like the Eastern mind would have read and understood that. And based on that alone, he says, I have a legitimate right to heal on the Sabbath. That's kind of where he's going with all this. The word translated said, where Jesus, uh, go back to verse 18, it says, but he also said that God was his father, also is in the imperfect tense. It means he kept on saying this. He didn't just say it this once that we have recorded, that this is something that Jesus said or spoke about oftentimes. And so again, it indicates that he repeatedly claimed equality with God. One of the things, as a kind of a side note, there are people who will tell you that Jesus never once claims to be God in the Bible. You ever met a person like that? It's out there. You can find it on YouTube. And, and I don't know what, honestly, I mean, I try to be respectful, but it, like, I don't know what Bible they're reading. I don't, I'm trying to figure that one out. Because the Bible is really clear of many places. This is one such place where Jesus claims to be equal with God, claims to be God. But you can also see that he did it uh, a lot in John chapter 5. This is taken from Dr. Constable's notes uh, from, from a man named Baxter, who he quoted it from. Um, don't try to write this down, by the way. I don't want you to hurt your hand. If you need this, just let me know. I'll send you this list. But Jesus claims equal, equality with his father in seven ways in John 5. Equal in working, verse 19. Equal in knowing, verse 20. Equal in resurrecting, verse 21, with verses 28 and 29. Equal in judging, verse 22. Equal, in, and we see it multiple times in John chapter 5. 
The other thing, one more thing in verse 18, you see that word making himself, that, that word making uh, is, is a participle. It's in the active voice. And the idea is that Jesus himself, through his words, made himself equal with God. It, in other words, it wasn't accidental communication on Jesus's part. He, was, he, he didn't say something to go, oh, I didn't know they would take it that way. No, he said something because he meant something. Like, he literally, you know, as we use that phrase, he didn't stutter, right? I mean, he just, he said it because he meant it. And so he was making himself equal with God. Based on verse 18, this is, again, it's just kind of pointing this out. This is where you expect Jesus to say, okay, I better back down a little bit. Like, this is getting heated, right? I, I can see the, the blood boiling, you know, through their eyeballs, right? I mean, this is getting out of hand. What we're going to see when we <clears throat> this, get in this next section, verse 19 through 30, he doesn't back down at all. In fact, he leans into his relationship with the Father. He's going to describe some things with his Father here that are just, I, I wish we had time. I mean, we're going to spend a lot of time, but I wish we had more time to just think about the implications of what he's saying here. In fact, he's, he's going to double down. He's going to give us, what I love about John 5 is I feel like Jesus gives us a behind-the-scenes insight into his relationship with the father. He's going to let us in behind the kitchen doors, right? He's going to let us see, so to speak, how the sausage is made, right? He's going to get us on the inside here and the way that he describes things with his father. And it's, it's just incredible. It's kind of fun to get this insight because it, it just comes in little snippets. And so he's going to continue to double down, even though they're getting a little upset with them. And we see again in verse 19 that Jesus answered. Again, this is, he's answering a question or statement that we're not privy to. Okay, we're, but he answered them and said, most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do for whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. We don't have that exact statement. What might he have said? It's probably what was said in verse 18. They probably continued to attack him verbally. They probably continued to threaten him for breaking the Sabbath. They probably questioned his identity, right? Something to that effect. Because you could say, he says, most assuredly, or amen, amen, right? He's going to say that a lot. We'll see that, that phrase kind of develop in John and, and, and throughout the book. But he's going to say, what I'm about to tell you is the truth. <laughs> you need to listen. I'm not, I'm not stuttering. I'm going to tell you what's true. And, and hang with me, you're not going to like it, but I'm going to tell you what's true. And this is what he does. He starts to tell them what he's, what's true. And one of the things that you can see before we kind of get to this, because Jesus in verse 19 just makes a mind-blowing statement. When we get there, I, in fact, we'll get there in the next slide. But, but we want to kind of slow down and look at it because it, it is mind-blowing and it can impact the way you live the Christian life. It can impact the way you think through your day-to-day -day walk with the Lord. And so when we get there, uh, we're going to talk about that. But understand this, that when he says in verse 19, that the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do, you see what he's doing? He's, he's actually in some way encouraging or assuring the Jewish leaders that he's not claiming independence from the father. He's actually letting them know that his actions are submissive or subservient to the father. You see how he kind of States, states that subtly. Very important because I think in some ways, I, I'm, I'm saying that he's not backing down, but I think he's, he is stooping to their level, trying to, trying to get them to see what he's saying in a, in a softer way. So he's not saying, I'm just this independent rogue agent doing my own thing, you know, and kind of having this, this obnoxious attitude about it. No, he's saying, I'm subservient to my father, but we are on the same page. And we are God, both of us are God. Now, we're not the same. You know, we've talked about the Trinity, but we're both God. I have divine prerogative just like the Father does, but he says, I'm in a subservient role. And so he kind of lets them know, and, uh, lets them know this going throughout. But what Jesus says here, uh, honestly, is really incredible. And he says, if I could just read it again, he, he literally says the Son can do nothing of himself. And I want you to just think about that for a second. He can do nothing of himself. And I'm just like, really? I might have been told that growing up. And I might have heard that many times growing up. But usually growing up, when I thought of Jesus, I thought he could do anything, anytime, anywhere, wherever, however he wants to when he was on earth. And it kind of looks like that as you're looking through the gospels. 
But we get this incredible insight right here into the life that Jesus lived. I want to kind of look at this a little bit more closely because it is a stunning statement. And so what does he mean when he says nothing of or from himself? He could do nothing of or from himself. Well, we translate a word there, can do. It's these two Greek words. It's a phrase combining two Greek words, meaning to be able to do, to have the power to do. And this is very important. It usually expresses one's inherent power to do or accomplish something. It's it's what they possess inherently in their own resources to accomplish something. It's typically how this word is used, right? We can look at a bulldozer that's sitting on, you know, sitting on a piece of property. It's not in use. But we can still look at that bulldozer and say, yeah, but if I flip the switch, that thing could do some damage. Because we understand the inherent power that a bulldozer has. It may not be executing that power, but we understand inherently what it possesses. So it's like, wow, that's kind of a weird statement that Jesus doesn't have the inherent power to accomplish something. And and that should make you feel uncomfortable for a second. And then we'll come back and try to explain I think what he's talking about. The other thing we want to see is that added to this Greek phrase that we just looked at is, is the negation, the Greek negation. Ooh, it means it's a direct and full negation. It's uh, an independent and absolute negation. It's objective. So he's saying objectively nothing. He can do objectively nothing from his own resources. Just think about that for a second. Because when it comes to uh, the realm of his own power and resources, Jesus did nothing. That should be mind-blowing. And what that tells us is this. Jesus lived his human life in reliance upon somebody else's resources, God the Father. That is mind-blowing. If you've never considered that thought before, that is absolutely mind-blowing that he limited the voluntary use of his divine attributes, that's Philippians 2, and he lived moment by moment in reliance upon the Father's resources to do everything that he did in his life. We quote Galatians 2.20 a lot, right? We, I love Galatians 2. One of my life verses, right? I love that verse. But the phrase in Galatians 2, 2.20 goes like this. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Jesus would have said this too, but worded it slightly differently. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in God the Father. You see, isn't that incredible to think about Jesus that way? What's so fascinating, and I mentioned this earlier, we don't typically think of Jesus this way. He could do anything he wants, anytime he wants, wherever he wants, with whoever he wants. And we think about this, but it's simply not true. Jesus didn't live his life independent from the Father. We pick all of that up here from in the middle of this dialogue here uh, with these Jewish religious leaders. And again, it's not because he ceased being God. We looked at that. Philippians 2, we've looked at this before. He gave up the right to the voluntary use of his divine attributes while in this earthly body. It's amazing. The incarnation is amazing. Jesus Christ is amazing. I I mean, I just hope like the more we hear about him, the more blown away you are by this man. He's simply incredible. He's simply unique. He's simply one of a kind. And we can even see that in the way that this is blown off. So what's really crazy here is the key word in this whole passage. There's lots of things floating around here. But to me, the key word is of, right? Not trying to be Bill Clinton-esque here, but I, the key word is of. Christ did not have the ability or capability to do something in and out from his own resources. That's what he's saying here. And that is just unbelievable. Even though he possessed unlimited divine resources, He was choosing to rely upon the Father's resources to get things done. It's just mind-blowing. In fact, what's really cool, is we're going to see this in this verse too, is the mode by which Jesus tapped into these divine resources. It's all there, right there in verse 19. And what we're going to see is the mode that he tapped into to God the Father's resources is being occupied with God the Father, literally walking by faith. That should be sounding familiar to us. That should be ringing in our ears. Jesus, you know, the, the, old, the old bracelet, right? I used to have one, right, back in the day. Although I probably shouldn't have been wearing it when I would because I didn't really care what Jesus would do at that point in my life. But the what would Jesus do? Well, let me tell you, that, was, that, that whole bracelet took on a mind of its own and it became this activity-centered focus. 
But if you wear a bracelet that says, what would Jesus do? And you're talking about dependence or reliance upon somebody else's resources to live your life, you hit a home run. You hit a home run with that acronym because that's biblical. And so we'll, we'll see this. How did he tap in to the Father? And this is, again, what I love. I love this relational aspect that we're going to see between God the Son and God the Father. Jesus Christ was occupied with the Father. I believe that when Jesus Christ woke up in the morning, he says, I cannot wait to enjoy my Father. In fact, I don't even think he, I think he woke up just dying to get back into fellowship and communication with his Father. That's what drove his life, was his personal relational intimacy. What he sees the Father do, notice what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Again, Jesus cannot do anything out from himself or his own resources, but as he watches the Father do things, he's able to do those things as well. See the connection there, being occupied with him. This word see means to have the faculty of sight, the ability to see. And the idea is because it's in the present tense, Jesus right now and continually occupied himself with the Father. You could put it this way, and I think Jesus did it perfectly because he was never out of fellowship with the Father. He literally quit, he never stopped looking at God the Father. He never stopped being occupied with him and whatever he was facing in his life, he keeps his eyes on the Father. And it's just a really beautiful illustration. You know, he's talking about this son being an extension of the Father. Many uh, fathers and sons in those days, fathers would train their sons in the very trade that they were involved in. And this is exactly how they learned their trade. They would watch their dad. They would get into the shop with their dad. They would watch him cut boards. They would watch him measure boards. They would, they would just look and just lock in on their dad and see everything that he did. They would see how he would interact with customers. They would see how he would sell. And that little boy would become an extension of his father one day when he took over the family business. Why? Because he'd been watching his dad. He'd been occupied with his dad. And so we see this imagery even coming through with the Lord Jesus speaking of his father. And so again, notice the mechanism by which Jesus taps into the father's resources. It's looking at the father by faith. That's how he lived, benefiting from someone else's resources. He kept his eyes on the father and what the father did, he could do also. By the way, I've said this already, kind of alluded to it. It's the exact same way we're designed to live the Christian life. The problem for many of us, and I throw myself in that category, maybe you're, you're past me. We go through life, trials hit, struggles hit, life hits, even good times hit, and we totally forget this point. And we are so confident in ourselves. Now, what have you done in your life that would prove to you that you are actually trustworthy? If I assume you don't, you don't really have a secret, you're like the rest of us. And yet, I'll fail today, not even five o'clock. I don't even get through a business day before I'm relying on myself again. What a shame. What a tragic shame. We're not designed to live that way. See, we are designed to live a victorious Christian life, not just for the sake of being victorious, but for the sake of being in fellowship with the Lord Jesus. That's it. And so when we talk about this in the Bible, it's called multiple things. Walking by faith, abiding in Christ, beholding the Lord, occupying ourselves with him, setting our mind on things above. This is why 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, again, look at your part in this verse and then look at God's part, our part, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. What's your part? Beholding him. Can you do that? Can we, is that something easy to do? I mean, we don't do it consistently, but it's easy to do. Can you just behold Jesus Christ? Just enjoy him? Think about him? Enjoy what you're learning about him? Enjoy what you're singing about him? That's beholding Jesus. Can you do that? Can we do that throughout our daily week? Look what happens if you do. Are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. This first reminds me of driver's ed. You know, my, my, <laughs> I grew up in the era where I actually had to drive with a driving instructor on the road to get past, like multiple times, like four or five times my driving school. And it was, I felt so bad for the guy because he had a brake on his side just in case some student went haywire and they built in another brake on his side. But I remember him telling me one time and it always stuck out to me. And this kind of, this verse reminds me of it. He said, you're going to drift to where you're looking. You're going to drift toward what you're occupied with. And this verse just shows us. 
So, you know, those of you that, and I probably shouldn't go off here because I got more to cover, but, but it's just, I think I need to say it. Those of you that are occupied with politics, guess where you're going to drift? Those of you that are occupied with sports, that's where you're going to drift. By the way, are politics and sports evil? Well, I mean, polit- okay, but I should throw politics. <laughs> uh, in and of themselves, they're not evil, but they're neutral and they distract you from where we should be occupied. And so all of us need to take that into account. Is your career a, sh- uh, you know, a, a, behold- a beholding stopper of Jesus Christ? Is your career that way? Is somebody in your family that way? Is politics that way for you? Is this, that, I mean, throw in whatever, you know? Just don't throw in the Dallas Cowboys. You might have to, you might be stepping on my toes then. But no, but, but clearly that's not what we want to be occupied with, any of those things. It's not that we don't deal with those things as they come up in life. It's not that we can't even enjoy some of those things as they come up in life. But what are you occupied with? That's different. That's a, that's a totally different conversation. And just giving Jesus a nod on Sunday morning it probably indicates you're not occupied with him. Oh, you know, blowing him a kiss on Sunday morning or something. I mean, it's offensive, right? He's worth so much more than that. Second, uh, Colossians 3, 1 through 2. I love this. I hadn't seen this until I looked at this, and I've looked at this verse a million times. But if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. Why? Where Christ is. Who are you occupied with? I, we could talk about, oh, I'm, my mind on things above. I'm thinking about the pearly gates. I'm thinking about the golden roads. I'm thinking about, you know, blah, 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 blah. Are you thinking about Jesus Christ? I mean, the, the, the pearly gates, great. But I'm just going to tell you, and I think you would agree with me, that when we get there, if the pearly gates are there and Jesus Christ are on the other side, I'm not even seeing the pearly gates. I'm seeing the man behind the gates. I'm seeing the one with the scars in his hand and the scars in his feet. That's who I'm seeing. Pearly gates, I'll look at that in a thousand years. But for the first thousand, he's my man, right? At least a thousand. I might, I might variate on that. It might be 10,000 after the time I get there. But that's the point. We want to keep our eyes up. We want to actively keep our eyes above. And Jesus provides this great example, kind of tying back in now to verse 19. Let's get back to that final phrase in the verse. For whatever he does, speaking of the Father, the Son also does in like manner. And Jesus is stating simply this. If God the Father decides to work on the Sabbath, then I'm going to work on the Sabbath, period. And I'm going to do the same things he would do. Because I'm relying on him and his resources to do it. Jesus now switches to a president, uh, a president, a president, <laughs> politics has thrown me off, um, a president indicative, meaning um, the idea is whenever the father does something, the son jumps right in. And that's exactly what apprenticeship looked like in this day. The, the father would be cutting and, and the son would be right over there and say, oh, let me, let me get in there, dad. Let me try this one. Let me, let me get involved here. And that's kind of, I think, the imagery that's coming forward there. So in like manner, again, just trans, translates a word meaning of equal degree or denoting perfect agreement. Again, the idea is that when Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath, when he gave him instructions to take up his mat and walk, he was doing, at, doing all of that at the behest of God the Father. They were in complete unison as it relates to this. Now, one of the things that's so beautiful, again, I keep saying that, but it, it really is in this section. Why can Jesus speak so confidently How can he know that his actions are approved by the Father? How can he know this? And so Jesus is going to give us uh, a reason. And he's going to continue to double down. He's not backing off. He's he's grinding down here to his point. And what we're going to see here is at the very beginning of verse 20 is this this phrase. And we'll we'll pick up just that first phrase in verse 20 here uh, right now. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. You see what Jesus is picking up on? In fact, the word for gives us a, uh, it's a good Bible study word to notice if you're studying your Bible, because it gives you typically a further explanation or a further reason why the son is able to see and replicate, right, what the father is doing. In fact, notice all the fours. So go down to verse 21. It's going to start with a four. Verse 22 is going to start with a four. These are going to further expand and explain. He's developing an argument. He's just expanding on it. 
as he goes. The very first reason that he's going to say that he has the right to see the Father and do what he does is because the Father loves him. Now, for those of you that are Greek, Greek geeks, you're going to like this one. Um, because it's just interesting because if I shouldn't have pulled it up because now you see it. But if you were to guess what love is used there, we would automatically, many of us would have thought agape. We just, uh, that's naturally what I would have thought. It's actually the Greek word phileo. Uh, it means to love. It means to have affection for someone or to be fond of someone. It describes having love or affection for someone based on, notice that, based on what? Association. Based on relationship. It's kind of the idea. Oftentimes, phileo is probably oversimplified and said, so, well, that's friendship love and then agape love is unconditional. Sometimes we, I think we oversimplify that. Greeks, I, I think a little bit more nuanced than, than an oversimplification. But I think what, what's being drawn out here is this love or affection based on association. In other words, by using this word, Jesus is communicating, there's a relationship here. And that's the love. It's based on this association with me that he's my father, I'm his son. And I think that's what he's bringing out here. Now, some, again, might, might expect agape here, but it's not. Now, it's not that the father doesn't agape love his son. He does. In fact, I, I think it's used that way six times in the book of John. But what's really fascinating, it, it, and you might write this down because it, it doesn't happen that often, but this is the only place in the New Testament where phileo is used of the father's love for the son. Only place in the New Testament, right here in John 5.20. And, and again, I, I mentioned, if you, we don't want to oversimplify this word, but there is possibly a little distinction between phileo and agape. And phileo, again, uh, emphasizes that affection that arises out of a relationship. That's what he's emphasizing here. He, this isn't just some faraway God. You know, Jews, Jews had a distant God. And it started back at, uh, you know, at, uh, on the mountain when they were getting the law, right? I couldn't think of the mountain. Mount Sinai, okay, now I can say it because it came to my mind. But it started there because they said, we don't want to hear God's voice direct. We want Moses to go up there for us. And they stayed away from the mountain. There was this separation built in to Judaism. Jesus is saying, I've got a personal, intimate relationship with God my Father. And guess what? That's why I can do what I do. It's, and, and he loves me and he accepts me, if you will. So again, why does Jesus use that here? It's that close association between the two. And thus, God the Father's activities uh, and his affection and approval of the Son or, or leads to his affection and approval of the Son and his activities. Again, this, this idea that he shows to make known the character or significance of something. And there's a very, uh, I think, a very personal element being shared here. He's basically saying, God the Father just continually lets him in behind the scenes. God the Father can continually allows him to be involved with the private inner workings of the family, right? This is the family working. And you know, this, this, this is what should happen in families, right? You, you discuss things with, with your kids. You discuss things with your wife. Your wife discusses things with her husband. You, you talk about things in the family. You get behind the scenes and you, and you tell oftentimes your kid, uh, this is why we're doing this this way. They're, they're in the know. They're behind the scenes. They hear why maybe Karen and I are making the decisions that we're making, why they couldn't do this. We let them in the know. That's what healthy families should, should be doing. There's a, there's a level of intimacy. There's a level of in the know that your family has that nobody else knows about your family. Should be. And so that's the case here with God the Father and the Lord Jesus. And this is what he's describing here, this kind of this behind-the-scenes aspect. And again, using that apprentice uh, example again, the, a master builder would bring his apprentice into the shop. He would explain it to him. He would show it to him on a real piece of wood, how you measure it, how you cut it, why you do it in a certain way, why you do it in a certain order. That's what you do when you're training an apprentice. You let them in behind the scenes. And this is exactly, I believe, what Jesus is saying here when he's using this word, love. And then also that, that phrase, and he shows him all the things that he himself does. And so again, this showing is more than just, hey, look at this. Hey, watch me do this. Look, how, look at me. Let me show you why I'm doing it. Let me show you how I'm doing it. Let me show you how you hold the tool. Let me show you how you hold your pencil, right? It's a, a lot more going into this, this showing that he's talking about here. And oh, by the way, just when you think Jesus wouldn't double down anymore, he's, he's fixing to double down even more 
right here in this next couple of phrases. Because basically he's going to tell them, you think healing the man at the pool and telling him to take up his mat on the Sabbath is the worst possible thing that I could ever do or say? You haven't seen nothing yet. It's basically what he's about to say to these leaders. And one of the things that he's going to say is that he's going to do more than that. Not less. He's not backing down. He's going to do more than that. And so in verse, uh, the last couple of verses there, 20b and 21, he, he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as a son or as a father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the son gives life to whom he will. He will show, same word used earlier in terms of showing him what he was doing, only this time it's a, it's a future indicative. It's a guaranteed promise coming into the future. And it's something that God the Father is going to show the Son. So what is that exactly? Well, he says he's going to do greater works than these. Greater works than the one he just did. He's going to do greater. Now, the word greater can mean uh, larger in quantity or quality. And I think both of those are true. Jesus, does Jesus do many other works throughout the rest of his life? Yes. So that would fit the greater. Does he do more impressive works in quality? Yes, he does. And he's going to mention uh, a couple of those. In fact, one of the things that he's going to say is this healing of uh, this infirm man of 38 years is nothing compared to what I'm about to do. And one of those things is, is this idea that he can resurrect the dead. That's what's going to be really incredible here as we, as we go that. So why does he do it, though? Why is God the Father wanting to show God the Son these works or show through him? When we get this, this hena clause in the Greek, it's the word uh, translated that. It expresses the, the Father's purpose. What is his purpose for doing this? They were to have an impact on Jesus' audience. They were designed to convince them and persuade them that Jesus was the Messiah, that they could put their faith in him alone for eternal life. That he's exactly who the prophets testified was. These works were designed to do that. And this is exactly what God wants to happen. Marvel means to, to wonder, to be struck with admiration or astonishment. Again, notice the purpose is so that they could identify the son through these miracles. Unfortunately, many of them never got it. Now, it also is interesting. The verb translated, you may marvel, subjunctive mood, not an indicative mood. That means that there was possibility they would respond the way God wanted them to, that God desired them to marvel in this way, but it wasn't guaranteed. In fact, many of them stiff-armed these signs, just like a running back does off of you know left tackle. He, he, they stiff-armed these signs, wouldn't take them in, wouldn't receive them. And so Jesus now, as we go forward, we're only going to look at one this morning, But he mentions these greater works in the next couple of verses. Again, verse 21, he raises the dead. Verse 22, he will judge the world. Now, these are, again, keep, feed Jesus these microphones because he's dropping them right and left. And this is one of those as well because the Jews had no problem understanding that God the Father raised the dead. They believed that from the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, remember how I told you the Father works and I do the same things? The Father does this, so I do this. Resurrection of the dead is something I'm going to take care of as well. That would have been, I mean, you can see why they're getting upset with them. <laughs> so again, four, uh, great Bible study word explains the greater works. Again, documented resurrection in the Old Testament. Nobody doubted that God the Father of Yahweh could raise the dead. You see those examples there. They had no problem. They viewed God the Father as the giver, the sustainer, the taker of life. And this is why in Ezekiel 37, which is many of them in terms of going into the millennial kingdom, the Jews understood this passage. Therefore prophesy, Ezekiel 37, 12 says, and say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, says the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves, bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I'm the Lord when I've opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Daniel twelve two, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And this is why when Jesus asked Lazarus' sister in John 11, do you believe he'll rise from the dead? She says, oh yeah, I believe that on the last day. So Jew, Orthodox Jews understood that God was going to raise the dead. What they didn't understand, and what the, the mic drop moment here, the hand grenade moment, is that Jesus is claiming to be the agent of resurrection. The very passages we just read were pointing to something he was going to accomplish. 
And he's letting his audience know this. And you can imagine their response. They're not too uh, thrilled. What, el- what also is interesting is Jesus is using all present tense verbs right here. For the father right now raises the dead. Right now gives life. The son right now gives life to whom he will. So it kind of provides a little bit of an interpretive question mark there. He could be talking about spiritual life, wherein a, a sinner who's dead in their trespasses and sin are made alive together the moment they trust in Christ. We see that in Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. But I actually would take it the other way, that the main point is, is this. God the Father has the power to give life out of death, and so does the Son. And I think he's talking about that re- legitimate resurrection. And so the idea is, you think about the most incredible things that God the Father can do, that you know is true from the Old Testament. He's talking to these Jewish religious leaders and understand the Son can do the same exact things because we're so united in our purpose. And I'm simply an extension of the Father is, I believe, what Jesus is saying. By the way, will Jesus manifest resurrection power in his earthly life after this event in the present? Yeah, We have it recorded. The widow of Nain's son, Jairus' daughter, Lazarus uh, in John 11. That's another sign that John points to to convince people to believe that he's the Messiah. But we we must remember this, that although Jesus did many signs and miracles, including raising others from the dead, remember this, the ultimate sign that Jesus always attempted to point people to was his own resurrection. The and, and he began to, even toward the end of his life, they were asking for more signs. He says, I'm only going to give this generation one sign. I'm going to be buried in the heart of the earth three days and three nights, right? Just like the prophet Jonah. And then I'm going to be raised again. And that's the, the, the drive that he started to point people to. We've already seen one reference to this in the book of John. If you go back to John chapter two there and, and you see him reference his own resurrection. Now, just as a concluding couple of points, one of the things that's really cool, Jesus knows all of these things about himself. I hate to even use this phrase because it's kind of been hijacked by philosophy, but I would say that, that Jesus is very self-aware. And what I mean by that is he understands completely who he is. He understands completely what he was designed to do. He knows where he's from. He knows what he's designed to do on earth, all of these things. And so what he's doing, though, in John 5 is he's beginning to let the cat out of the bag, so to speak. <laughs> He's, let, he's letting this information slide out to the religious leaders. He's letting it slide out to his disciples. And so uh, one of the things uh, that's just so cool, again, about John 5 is it gives us this great picture of the person of Jesus Christ. So I hope you enjoyed looking at him a little bit this morning. We'll continue to do that next week. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I just rejoice to, to even just work through this passage and just think of the Lord Jesus and just consider the uniqueness of the life he lived on earth, the uniqueness of his personhood. And Lord, we want to be the type of people that, that are like the Lord Jesus in terms of our daily occupation, our moment-by-moment dependence and reliance upon your resources to live our life, not on our own. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.